calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. The Astrea Trilogy Written and read by Seymour Hamilton Book One The Voyage South Chapter Fifteen In which Astrea works as Gar's assistant That summer, Astrea's life became so crowded with new things to learn that he had scant time to think about the events that had brought him to the castle or about what might happen next. For most of the first few days, Gar paced up and down, glaring at the walls and arguing with himself under his breath. During that time, learneds and sometimes students came to the hall, ignoring, or perhaps being unable to read, the sign that Gar had nailed on the door. None of the learneds would listen to Lindy, and Gar was usually too busy, so it fell to Astrea to tell the visitors that the hall had been officially declared out of bounds. He expected that they would be angry at not being able to get to the books, and so he offered to help them find what they were looking for, but almost all refused, and went away muttering about not having been told. On one occasion two learneds forced their way past the second door, demanding to speak with the person who had written the notice. Gar ignored them, and they ignored Lindy, so it was once more Astrea who had to explain that they should have been told why they might be inconvenienced. Their reaction was to blame him rather than their colleagues. "'I'm sorry,' said Astrea. "'I don't know the learned's names who are dealing with Gar, with the man who hired me. But if you wish, I can help you find the books you're looking for.' "'Find a book for me, boy. How would you do that? By its texture and colour? "'By tasting its cover, perhaps,' said the other, his voice heavy with sarcasm. "'No, he'd find it by closing his eyes and spinning around three times,' said the first, chuckling at his own wit. The two green-gowned figures walked off laughing. Gar had heard, and took the time to clap Astrea over the shoulder. "'Ignore the insults and the laughter of fools!' "'But they're learned, learned fools! Learned in name only! Most of them can't read!' "'Really?' Well, they think they can, but most of them just scan a few pages, remember a few words, and then go on with what they remember from when they were learning from the previous generation of fools. Astrea wondered how much of this was fact, and how much was coloured by Gar's disdain for the men who had hired him. Gar, where do these books come from? Well, they're just about all of them from before. Before what, Gar? Didn't anyone at your village tell you about before? No, they just used the word to shut off discussion, the same way they did with the word away. 
When I asked Skarm where his books came from, he said they were from away. It's the village's word for anything that isn't, well, that isn't from the village. My father was from away. Mother told me that was why they called him Stranger or the Foreigner. Me too, sometimes. Mattress people do much the same, said Lindy. We say it's from outside. Outside, from away, before, what do they mean? There are places people haven't been and don't want to go, said Gar. They distrust anything or anybody who might know more than they do. But but I need you to help me move that scaffold. Those idiots who brought it didn't put it in the right place. Before comes after. <laughs> With a grunt of amusement at his own words, Gar tossed Astraea a handful of thick twine. Here, untangle this. I'll show you how to lash scaffolding in a moment. He spent a little time with Lindy, making a list of materials. When he returned, Estrella had already made a start on cross-bracing the first level of scaffolding. You have to triple-lash each crossing of the poles, and then tighten it by— Gar began, and then, as he came closer, interrupted himself. Well, stiffen me rigid. Where did you learn to do that? It's the way we make fish-drying racks in the village, said Estrella. Gar's eyebrows rose and then came together in a quizzical frown. He looked at Estrella as if about to ask a question, and then shrugged. Right. We'll need a lot more of these, and some planks as well for me to walk, sit, and sometimes lie on. Each day Gar's moods and instructions ruled Estrella and Lindy. They erected scaffolds, modified them, tore them down and re-erected them under his increasingly irritable directions. Each morning, after an early breakfast with the widow Amy, Gar would hurry them to the hall, where they stayed until evening steeped the light with a reddish glow that made him mutter about changing color values, even though he had yet to open a pot of paint. Occasionally he would declare the light at fault by mid-afternoon and go for a walk, leaving Astrea and Lindy with a few instructions tossed over his shoulder. Sometimes the sunset would begin, build to a golden display, and fade to darkness, without affecting his concentration. Gar walked the hall, climbed the scaffold, made small charcoal marks seemingly at random on the walls, climbed down and walked the hall again. From time to time he muttered to himself. He seemed oblivious to Astrea and Lindy, but if they took more than a brief moment to rest, he always had further instructions. Together they set out paints, pigments, brushes, steadying rods, pallets, cloths, cleaning rags, spatulas, palette knives, and all the other paraphernalia of the painter's craft on tables in the space between the bookshelves. Gar inspected, and then had them rearrange everything. Lindy was sent to purchase eggs and oil, while Estrella was bidden to find or make charcoal. When he returned with a grimy bag of burnt sticks on his shoulder, there was another task, and then another. Lindy's patience guided Estrella when he grew irritated by a way of life entirely different from the ordered, traditional ways of the village. "'Does setting things up for Gar ever end?' Estrella asked Lindy late one afternoon, as he poured linseed oil through a strainer for the third time. She looked up from the mortar in which she was grinding pigment and shook her head. "'It's a bit like working in someone else's kitchen,' she said. "'You have to accept the way he does things.' 
guards his own person. I don't understand where it's all leading. Almost all the things he has us do aren't part of any plan I can see. I can't tell whether something is Gar's way or the only way. My way is the only way, Gar's voice came from above them on the scaffold, startling them both. For me, that is, Gar added as he climbed down. Each cook rolls her own pastry, and every skipper trims the sails to his own liking. Do things your own way, or you'll never be proud of them. When you're in charge, that is. And for now, I'm in charge, and you two have to do what I say. His words held no exaggerated self-importance. They had the commanding quality Astraea knew from experience with the skippers at the village. Astraea glanced at Lindy, and fancied he could read unspoken words of agreement on her lips. He nodded his own acceptance, hoping that he would eventually understand what he was doing. The next day, Gar began to talk less to himself and more to Lindy and Astraea. Astraea only partially understood when Gar spoke of light, shade, and composition, but practical matters such as where to stand, sit, or lie to paint onto the upper parts of the walls were easy to follow. When Astraea's tentative suggestion about bracing the platforms met with approval, he found himself increasingly at Gar's elbow. Astraea followed Gar up the creaking scaffolds, listening to him talk about balancing colors and shapes in the overall design. Astraea matched Gar's complete disregard for height as they climbed hand over hand up and down the scaffolding. When they were back down on the floor of the hall, Gar abruptly spoke of something other than painting. "'You've been aloft before,' Astraea nodded. Gar was about to speak, but at that moment Lindy, who had been looking up at them open-mouthed, emerged from behind her work-table. "'I've climbed a few trees,' she said. "'But don't expect me to swing about that spider's web the way you two do.' Consequently, Astraea spent a great deal of time climbing up and down, fetching and carrying. Over most of one week he helped Gar sandpaper the raw plaster. As this erased his charcoal marks, Gar returned to walking the hall, climbing the scaffold, and replacing them. Astraea could see absolutely no significance to the tiny dots and lines, and Gar gave no indication of his plans. Sometimes, after Astraea and Lindy had completed a task, as much as an hour would go by when Gar was totally absorbed. Astraea used these times to explore the head-high rows of bookcases. Some stacks were entirely filled so tightly that he could not extract a single book. Others had shelves that were loose and sloppy, with volumes leaning on each other, their spines crooked from long disuse. Dust was thick on everything he touched. If Gar's intentions were inscrutable, the stacks of books were even more so. There was no plan that Astraea could discern. He found books with pictures of birds, beside books of maps, under books with titles so long and complicated that he could barely make out more than a few words, above books about battles, plagues, famines, and floods in places he had never heard of, next to books of poems, close to books that seemed to lack both rhyme and reason. On each brief opportunity to wander and search, he chose a different dead-end passage between rows of shelves, but everywhere he looked was the same jumble. He was behind a bookcase near the entrance when the door burst open and booted feet marched into the hall. Astraea 
looked through a gap in the shelf from which he had just taken the book and recognized Carl. His cloak was turned back on his shoulders, revealing a long knife at his belt. He looked about him disdainfully and saw Gar standing with his head back to stare at the ceiling. "'You there, old man! Where's your black-haired helper?' Gar turned slowly towards him and spoke softly. "'Leave now, lad, and don't come back, or you will live to regret it. You're going to throw me out, old man. Don't make me laugh. I could carve you up faster than—' Carl stopped, hearing quick footsteps behind him. He swung around, one hand reaching for his knife, his cloak swirling behind him. He saw Lindy with her staff at the ready, and Estrella's knife sliding out of its sheath. In Carl's moment of hesitation, Gar caught his flaring cloak and jerked him onto his back. Carl's head thumped onto the floor, and the whites of his eyes gleamed briefly before they closed. For a moment, Carl lay still. When he opened his eyes, he was looking up Lindy's staff, one end of which was at his throat. Astraea stood as if frozen, caught between a sudden, overwhelming desire to bury his knife in Carl's body and his conviction that what he felt was the insanity he had seen in Yan's eyes that day on the black sand beach. "'I did warn you,' said Gar, stamping his foot onto Carl's right hand. "'Estrella, give me his knife.' Estrella pulled Carl's knife out of its sheath and handed it to Gar, who stepped back and examined it judiciously as Carl flexed his fingers and winced. "'Too long, too thin.' and the blade's brittle," said Gar. He put his boot on the blade and jerked upwards, snapping the metal. Then he tossed the hilt at Carl's crotch. The stump of the blade cut Carl's fingers as he frantically tried to protect himself. "'Let him up, Lindy. He's on his way to tell his friends how an old man broke his knife while a girl kept him flat on his back. Or would you rather we broke the story for you, Carl?' I thought not. Gar's last words were to Carl's back as he strode out the door. That was satisfactory, said Gar conversationally. Now let's get back to work. Estrella breathed deeply, trying to calm the rush of energy that flowed through him. He had been instantly ready for action, but Gar and Lindy had fought for him. He resented being protected but in the same instant he was grateful to them for stopping him from attacking Carl. He knew that this time he'd been on the edge of losing control, whereas they had acted calmly, as they all had done previously. On top of these conflicting thoughts came the fear that they might think he had hung back like a coward. When the top of his head no longer felt as if it was trying to float up to the dome above him, he looked around to see that Gar had returned to staring fixedly at the ceiling, and Lindy was leaning her staff against a bookshelf. He clamped his jaw tight, determined not to be the first to speak, and strolled as casually as possible to the scaffold and deliberately checked the lashing on the poles, where he glimpsed Gar and Lindy sharing a moment of understanding. Estrella recoiled from them, sure that they thought that he had been frozen in fear. When they did not speak about what had happened, he spent several days in near silence, broken only by what was necessary for the work to go on. He wanted to explain that he had hesitated when he sensed that he was planning to kill Carl out of hand, 
but the excuse sounded lame. Even afterwards, his moment of rage troubled him. He thought of Yan's mindless desire to kill him that day on the beach, and decided that he, too, was capable of the same kind of irrational fury. Gradually, as he accepted that there had been no change in either Lindy's or Gar's behavior towards him, his tension eased. More than a week later, when the actual drawing and painting began, Estrella had little time for thinking about Carl. The setting-up phase had been confusing, but when the actual drawing began, Estrella marveled at the speed with which Gar sketched first a frieze of animals around the edges of the wall at the level of the bookcase tops, and then above the animals a few lines that suggested a procession of people. To his delight, Estrella was given increasingly difficult tasks, first applying the pale undercoat for Gar to paint the initial images, then filling in solid background color, then copying repeated images within the overall design. Day after day, he worked his way around the hall at the level of the window tops, painting intertwined leaves in a border a little more than a handspan wide. Estrella became so sure of what he was doing, he felt he could do it in his sleep. Then Gar had him work on a series of birds and animals to occupy the level above the leafy border. Estrella received his new assignment with trepidation, fearing that Gar had given him a task that was beyond him. For a few days he checked, commented, and approved Estrella's outlines, and then he simply told him to complete the detail in color, then continue the design on around the rest of the hall. Estrella worked on nervously, wondering if the old painter was looking for a chance to rid himself of a fumbling, cowardly assistant. But after several successful images, Estrella's confidence improved. He started to improvise minor changes, and Gar grunted approval. Estrella worked with painstaking care, focusing all his attention on the task, barely noticing that Lindy seemed always to know what brush or color he would need next. She was used to producing shades and subtle tones to Gar's specifications, but when Estrella started to work on his own, she took over his job as fetcher and carrier, climbing the scaffold with a cautious determination, unlike Gar and Estrella's casual disregard for height. She accepted Gar's grumbling when the pigments did not produce the effects he wanted, and gave a little smile of satisfaction whenever Estrella thanked her. She watched him carefully and brought him fresh pigments, or altered the consistency of the paint so that it clung better to the wall. It became a point of pride for Estrella that he never duplicated an image, so that each evening, before they left the hall, his reward was to hear Lindy name the new bird or beast he had painted that day. After several days, when they were both assessing the results, Gar stopped what he was doing and favored them both with a thumbs-up gesture of approval. Estrella's eyes met Lindy's, she smiled, and the last of his self-imposed reticence ended. When next he picked up his brush, he did so with a confidence that had been absent from his previous careful attempts. At the end of that day he climbed down from the scaffold to find Lindy and Gar gazing upwards at what he had been doing. "'Are they all right?' he asked. "'Will they do?' "'Any better than you have me out of work,' said Gar. As Estrella took breath to protest, he saw Lindy shake her head. "'What's wrong?' he asked her. "'Nothing's wrong, you silly goose.' 
Lindy chuckled. You're painting so well you've got Gar working to stay ahead of you. Her laugh convinced Estrella more than her words. That evening the conversation at dinner flourished, as it had not done since their first night at the widow Amy's. Drawing and painting wholly occupied Estrella's mind as the weather warmed to high summer. Learneds turned back their gowns over their shoulders every day, and scholars carried theirs on one arm whenever they thought the learneds were not watching. Inside the domed hall, Gar worked with his shirt-sleeves rolled. Estrella would have done so as well, but he wanted to keep his bracelet hidden, so he contented himself by asking the widow to enlarge the neck of his shirts. Lindy tied her lengthening blonde hair high on the back of her head, and when she was in the hall, kilted her skirts to the knee. Estrella shaved daily. One morning, when they arrived in the hall, the portly little learned with whom Gar had negotiated was haranguing a party of earnest scholars about reverence, holiness, and spirituality, pointing to the images of animals, birds, and flowers to illustrate his sermon. The scholars stood amazed by what they saw until Gar chased them all away. On another occasion, a troop of green-gowned learneds and scholars appeared through the doors, chanting as they came. As they became fascinated by what they saw, their recitations straggled into silence. One of them asked Estrella about the meaning of the drawings, and when he tried to reply, their leader, a tall man whose presence was enhanced by a broad, cream-coloured scarf on the top of his gown, gazed upwards and audibly implored his god for protection against wizardry and magic. He received a drop of paint in one eye. Trying his best to maintain his dignity, the learned pushed his way through his followers and led them back out of the hall. As the last scholar trailed out the door, Gar laughed. Astrea and Lindy looked up at him. Gar, said Lindy reproachfully, you did that on purpose. God bother us, he said. So sure they're right. They make my skin crawl. Surely they're entitled to their faith, said Estrella. Sure they are, said Gar, with unusual intensity. Trouble is, they inflict their beliefs on everybody else. Still muttering, he went back to his painting, while Estrella and Lindy shared a moment in which they both wondered what in Gar's past might have caused so strong a reaction. As the summer settled in and the grass turned from green to yellow, they kept the doors open to catch whatever wind might be enticed into the aisles of books. As more and more images of leaves, flowers, and animals flowed around the plastered walls and between the windows, Gar went back to walking, then climbing up to make a few charcoal marks on the dome, and then descending to walk again. This time Estrella barely noticed. He was delighted to see that the lines and colours he applied to the walls really did turn into leaves, birds, and animals when he climbed down and looked up at them from the floor. Up close he could see flaws and mistakes, which at first Gar touched up expertly, and after Estrella's technique improved, approved with a shrug. He started in a clockwise direction, alternating birds with animals, eventually working around the dome until he was back to the first animal he had drawn. He wondered whether this was to be the end of his contribution, and frittered away a day, improving and touching up. Then he climbed down the scaffold to see from the floor if the first and last animals fitted together as well as those done in sequence. 
He was standing with his neck cricked back, looking upwards, when Gar pulled at his sleeve. Help me move this bookcase away from the wall. Right. Up you go. This is your spot. Draw me a procession of the inmates of this asylum. Learned scholars and healers. When you're finished, do the same in the lower spaces between the windows, but this time in groups of the unlearned, taverners, butchers, barmaids, and persons of questionable repute. I'll be working on the dome. Be grateful. It's cooler down here than up on the top. Astraea was first elated, and then apprehensive. He had begun by copying Gar's leaves, and then he had a few sample sketches of animals to guide him, but now he was on his own from the start. He began with charcoal because he had finally understood that Gar's preliminary sketch marks were a way of defining the size and limits of what he wanted. Estrella began with a few fine marks that could easily be erased. Then he reached into his memory for the faces and figures he had seen in the town, tavern, and castle. Deliberately ignoring Gar on the scaffold above him, he sketched men and women of different ages and backgrounds. He included the overweight magistrate who had nearly condemned him, Nock's distinctive helmet of black hair, Sandy's round, freckled face, and Damon in the act of flicking his hair out of his eyes. He drew what he remembered of the two dark-complexioned men he had seen in the marketplace. He caught Carl's wide-legged, arrogant stride with his cloak tossed over one shoulder. In one of the lower spaces he drafted a cluster of long-nosed learneds, as they had stood during the arrival at the gatehouse, and he put Eva's face on one of four young healers in training. He was just finishing one of the tavern girls that he had seen leaning in a doorway, when Gar's voice startled him. "'Well, I'll be pounded flat,' said Gar. "'Lindy, come and look at this.' Astraea stopped what he had been doing and watched apprehensively as Gar and Lindy inspected his work. A part of him wanted to keep what he had done from being criticized. He considered asking them to wait until he had had a chance to correct and improve. Instead, he stood, charcoal stick in his hand, while the two of them stared at what he had done. As the silent moments grew uncomfortably long, he considered running out of the door never to return. They're, they're so alive, with so few lines, said Lindy slowly. He's got the touch, Gar agreed. He's good at doing men, she added. Astraea frowned. Was this approval, or damnation through faint praise? She's right, Astraea. You can draw men, even those you've only glimpsed, like these long-haired woodsmen. But look here, Astraea, what's wrong with the girls you drew? Astraea winced. Gar had unerringly focused on the images about which he was least certain. I... I don't know, he said. I do said Gar. The men over here have legs and hips and bodies under their cloaks and clothes. Lindy saw that. But the girls are just faces on top of long gowns. But the men are all clothed, and most of them gowned, too, said Lindy. What's the difference? The difference, my girl, and you too, young Astraea, is anatomy. What's under the cloaks and clothes? Yes, said Lindy. But he doesn't have to draw all that. It's only the cloaks and clothes that we see. Gar stared at her, 
then at Estrella, and then at the drawings, his eyebrows dancing up and down as he focused his attention back and forth. They're not all wearing gowns, now it's warmer. I suppose I should— began Estrella. You miss my point, said Gar. Estrella, draw me one of these men in his skivvies. Any one of them. Here, on this scrap of paper. Do it. Estrella obediently re-sketched the man he had made the centre of a group of arguing learneds. This time the pot-bellied, round-shouldered, knock-kneed, middle-aged learned who clutched a towel to preserve his modesty. Gar chuckled. Good, right. Now do one of the girls. Estrella frowned. This was more difficult. He redrew one of the girls with her cloak off her shoulders, and most of one leg peeping out of her cloak. You cheated, Estrella. Where's her body, for goodness sake? Let's see all of her. Hip, thigh, bottom, and breasts. Estrella raised his hand, poising the charcoal to try again, and then stopped. I can't, he said. I can't see it. Oh, my shattered oath, said Gar. It's so obvious. He can't draw it, because he can't see it. Lindy, take off your clothes. Estrella's eyes widened and his jaw dropped. What? Lindy demanded. Not a chance, she said firmly. He's got to see, Lindy, said Gar. Well, if you think I'm going to take off my clothes here and now, believe me, that's not going to happen. Gar strode forward and back in short steps, turning sharply as if coming to the edge of a cliff. He stopped short in the middle of the third repetition and stared at the sunlight on the floor below one of the tall windows. Estrella and Lindy watched him quizzically. "'Got it,' said Gar. He pulled Estrella a few steps back, so that he was looking towards the sunlit window. Then he took Lindy by the shoulders and pushed her so that she stood between Estrella and the window, and then turned her until the sun shone on one side of her face. "'Stay there. Don't move. Either of you.' He disappeared behind the scaffolding and bookcases, and reappeared with a book the size of a small tabletop, opened it to a blank page at one end, and thrust it into Estrella's hands. "'Estrella, look.' Absorb. Don't draw yet. Estrella frowned, and then blushed, as he saw that Lindy was silhouetted against the window, with the light through her blouse and skirt revealing the shape of her body. Gar looked over Estrella's shoulders and pointed. See, Estrella? Hips. Girl hips, not boy hips. No, don't move, Lindy. See the way that when she stands with her weight on one leg, everything's feminine? Look at that sweetly curved line around her hips. Nothing like a man's waist that's built for a belt with a knife in it. You can draw a man with straight lines, and catch just about all his angles and knobs, at least a young man's. You couldn't begin to catch Lindy on paper without curves. Long and smooth below, rounded above where her breasts— Oh, for goodness sake, Estrella, don't go all pressy on me. And don't you start moving, Lindy. Just because this boy is embarrassed doesn't mean you can wander off. This is part of your education. Both of you stop blushing this minute. Lindy stood still. At first she looked ready to mutiny and walk away. Then, as her initial embarrassment faded, she considered that Estrella had not said anything, and she became increasingly curious to see how he would draw her. She relaxed, and unconsciously slipped into the pose that Gar wanted— with her hips tilted, one arm hanging, 
the other hand cupped loosely below her chin, her head slightly to one side. Now draw, Gar ordered. Estrella's charcoal scratched across the page, catching Lindy's essentially female stance. He traced the hollowing at the small of her back, the long smooth line that began just above the outside of her knee and ran up and outwards, then swooped inwards and upward before moving outwards again around her rib cage, on to the entrancing curves of her silhouetted breast, up through the halo of her sunlit hair to her face. One part of Astraea's mind drew shapes and contours. Another warmed to the task of capturing not just any girl, but Lindy herself. Behind Astraea's shoulder, Gar smiled as he watched the sketch taking shape. All three of them were locked into the moment. Later, each of them reflected that if they had not been interrupted, even more might have been said and understood. But footsteps echoed in the hall, and the magic evaporated. All three reacted. Astrea dropped his charcoal stick and closed the book on his thumb. Lindy shook off the soft calm in which she had been standing, and hurried back to the painting equipment. Muttering curses under his breath, Gar strode to the door, waving his arms in a vigorous gesture of dismissal. Out! Out! I don't care who you are! Oh, it's you, Damon. All right, but don't interrupt the work of shattering genius that you are privileged to witness in its gestation stages, wherein none can tell whether it will be a masterpiece of human imagination or a horrible heap of hideous half-hearted scrawls. Damon strode into the hall and looked with his head back, staring at the images of people, animals, and birds. This is going to be good, said Damon. I doubt the dean and the god squad will like it, but the scholars will. Estrella ignored him and began to copy his drawing of Lindy onto the wall, wondering if he could transfer what he had learned when it came to do sketches of women who had not posed for him. Damon's voice turned into background noise, unnoticed, until an exclamation of surprise broke Estrella's concentration. Hey, that's Lindy! I can't draw women, Estrella explained. So Gar was showing me. He's learning at the feet of the master, said Gar. I'm conducting a class here. It doesn't look as if Estrella needs it, said Damon. He knows what a man looks like under his clothes, because men take off their shirts to work and their breeks cling to their legs. But women wear skirts and blouses and whatever, so you can't see their bodies, said Gar. And that's one of the reasons why it's so much fun taking their clothes off, said Damon with a practised leer. Almost out of sight behind a table of equipment, Lindy stirred a pot of paint more vigorously than was necessary. Gar's lips twitched. Looking at this, said Damon, I'd say you draw women very well, Estrella. You've seen a lot more of Lindy than, than usually meets the eye. Lindy abruptly thumped the paint-pot on the table. Estrella swung around and glared at Damon, who raised both his hands in apology. Just a figure of speech, Estrella. Don't look at me like that, Gar. Don't reach for your staff, Lindy. What I meant to say was that Estrella has drawn, um, a speaking likeness of Lindy, and has let us all see that she's uh, a good-looking woman, which she always was, er, is. But, um, his voice trailed off, she doesn't flaunt it, 
said Gar, with finality. "'That's what you wanted to say, isn't it, Damon?' Damon nodded. Lindy frowned at Damon, and then when she caught Astraea's glance at her, favoured him with an expression that he could not interpret. "'The reason I came,' said Damon, in the tones of someone deliberately changing the subject, "'is to tell you that we're meeting at Bob the Swab's tavern this evening. That's me and Nock and Sandy, and Eva as well.' "'Eva?' Lindy asked. "'I thought women weren't allowed to—' "'There's a lot that's not allowed, but that doesn't mean it isn't done,' said Damon. "'Then we should join you after we finish up here,' said Gar. When Damon left, he took with him the moment he had interrupted. Although all three went back to what they had been doing, none of them could concentrate. Eventually, Gar threw down the stick of charcoal he'd been waving vaguely at the dome. "'Beer,' he said. "'Come on, you two. We're not doing anything useful here.' That day ended at the tavern. Robert the taverner came towards them as they entered, and waved them to the same table where Astraea's adventure with Carl had begun. "'I'd like to thank you,' began Astraea, but Robert waved both hands in the air and talked him down. "'Have a nice quiet evening this time,' he added, emphasizing quiet both with his voice and a series of meaningful glances at each of their faces. Astraea sat with his back to the wall next to Gar's chair, with Lindy on his right. They had no sooner picked up their first mugs of ale when Damon, Sandy, and Nock arrived with Eva, who had cut her hair shorter so that it swung across her shoulders. The four of them had just climbed over the castle wall, and were eager to explain how cleverly they had avoided the learned's watchman. "'Eva, are the healers teaching you well?' Astraea asked. Eva responded with a brief nod, before sitting between Damon and Sandy, who competed for her attention. After that, Eva took little notice of Astraea, although she glanced at him from time to time, perhaps disappointed that he gave no indication of jealousy, no matter how much she flirted with Damon and Sandy. From Astraea's point of view, the three of them had become a pattern, a composition, an event to be captured and recalled for the next day, when he might draw the angle of their heads, the way they leaned towards each other, the expressions that came and went on their faces. They were interesting to him, but the moment when he had sketched Eva beside Gar's cart in the meadow was now a distant memory. As one of the taverner's helpers brought them beer, Astraea scanned her, noting her outthrust chest, swaying hips and bold glances. The girl noticed his gaze and accentuated her every move, bending forward so that her blouse gaped as she slid the beer mugs onto the table. She was used to being stared at, but was taken aback by the concentration of Astraea's gaze. His look was not the usual open-mouthed sexual hunger that she was used to seeing in the faces of the students and young men of the town. She pouted at him, tossed her tousled red-brown hair, and flounced off to another table, where three scholars greeted her raucously. Gar looked on with approval, congratulating himself. He decided that Astraea's interest had swiftly matured from the bashful glances of an easily embarrassed boy to a young man with an artist's eye for what was around him. "'Just one thing, Astraea,' he whispered. "'Don't let him see you stare. That's when the boyfriends get ugly and you'll find yourself in a fight.' Mm, "'I know,' said Astraea. Gar's attention had been claimed by Damon, 
So putting aside his memories of Yan and the fight on the beach, Estrella's gaze left the tavern girl and refocused on Lindy. As usual, she was saying little and observing much. He smiled at her, and her lips moved. Estrella was certain she was asking him, "'Did you like what you just saw?' Estrella spoke out loud without thinking first. "'Not really. Nowhere near the way I like seeing you.' He knew he had read her lips correctly when she blushed. There was a silent moment in which they both acknowledged and accepted what had happened. As the evening went on, each time he glanced at her beside him, she seemed so much more real than everything else around him, and he was secretly elated that she seemed to be warming to his covert attention. When he looked at her, she did not apparently react, but he noticed a different quality in her eyes. Amazed by the change, he looked away, his attention flickering over the men and women in the tavern. Then his eyes met Lindy's again, and the corners of her mouth lifted in a delicate smile. Estrella's cheeks burned, and he looked away again. When he looked back, she was still smiling, her lips curling back from even white teeth. Gar watched these exchanges as each mug of ale led to the next. Drawing attention to himself, he once again began to rattle off still more of his improbable stories. When Damon challenged the truth of a particularly outrageous tale, Gar's voice penetrated Estrella's concentration, and he noted that he had not been listening for some time. "'All my stories are founded on the very stuff of which great truths are made,' Gar proclaimed, and launched into another. Estrella went back to looking, memorizing, and sketching in his mind. As the evening progressed, the tavern full of people seemed less interesting to him, and Lindy became more fascinating by the moment. Eventually he did not even bother to pretend he was listening to Gar's continual flow of words, and simply stared into Lindy's eyes. When they all left the tavern, Sandy took Eva's arm. Immediately Damon took her other arm. Nock, who had lurched unsteadily out of the tavern door behind them, stood swaying slightly, hands on hips. "'Let's go,' he said. "'We gotta get her back of the wall.' "'And you two better help me this time.' "'Comes out uneven any way you look at it,' said Gar. "'Hard to work it out.' "'Not worth the effort,' said Lindy. Gar chuckled at Estrella's puzzled expression in the light of the tavern's open door. Lindy's shadow fell between them. To their mutual surprise, she took both their arms and started purposively down the road. Considerably steadier than either of them would have been alone— the three walked back to the widow Amy's house. After that day, Estrella, Gar, and Lindy subtly and silently became working partners who fiercely protected each other from the rest of the world. A part of this unspoken contract was that all three had secrets that they were entitled to keep or speak of as they wished. As the summer ripened, the painting slowed into the painstaking work of completing images so different from the exhilarating business of sketching the outlines of what was to come. At the beginning of this process, Estrella and Gar took time away from the hall to stroll together, notebooks in hand, to capture details of faces and figures, and then to discuss what and how to incorporate what they saw into the overall composition on the walls and dome. They visited taverns, and drew furtive portraits of young men and women, scholars and farmers, smiths, peddlers, tavern-girls, and toss-pots, just as Gar had bidden Estrella to do. 
But now there was no further testing. They spoke, and sometimes argued, more as equals than as student and teacher. And though Gar noticed that Estrella filled many sheets of paper with drawings of Lindy, he never mentioned it. When they returned to rework their sketches into completed pictures on the walls and ceiling, Estrella had still more to learn. After his first attempt at capturing a particular scholar with long hair and an angular body, he felt he'd been quite successful. But when he climbed down to the floor, his work looked awkward and distorted compared to the sure strokes with which Gar was finishing another figure nearby. I can't do it, Gar. It's all wrong, and I don't know why. Climb up here again. Chewing his lips with frustration, Estrella did as he was told. Now look. By some magic, his drawing seemed acceptable. It's where you're looking from, Estrella. You have to make the feet smaller than you'd draw them for an ordinary picture, and the heads bigger, and kind of taper the middle bits between, so that from up here the figures look odd, but when you get down on the floor again they seem right. Here, try it. Estrella did as he was told, checking the proportions against Gar's work. Lindy's voice floated up to them from below. "'Hey, you two, haven't you noticed that it's getting to be time for supper?' "'Go ahead, Lindy,' said Gar. "'We'll be along shortly.' She continued to watch them from the floor, but the two painters did not notice her. After a little while she shrugged and left them. At last warm golden light shone through the windows, and the shadows obscured what they were doing. They climbed down together and talked all the way back to their lodgings, leaving paint pots, leaving paint pots uncovered, brushes drying, and Estrella's jacket hanging on the scaffold. As they reached the door, Gar muttered in Estrella's ear, "'We're late for supper, and we left a mess for Lindy to clean up. Be very agreeable. Praise the food.' Like the evenings before, they began by taking baths, and then turned their attention to the widow Amy's cooking. Gar teased Amy. She pretended to be insulted. He praised her cooking. She tried to make all three of them overeat. Gar never spoke of the painting, or himself, or what he was planning. Much of the time he encouraged the widow Amy to speak about her favorite subjects, magic and superstition, which she referred to as medicine. There was nothing that happened for which she did not have an explanation. Some of her beliefs were guides to everyday life. If her cat washed behind the ears before breakfast, there would be rain before noon. If crows cawed in flight, a thunderstorm would brew up by nightfall. If anyone sneezed, only ritual washing with her herbed soap would protect everyone from falling sick. If the new moon hung in the sky like a cup, the rain would hold up for a month. If you ate with dirty hands, your stomach would rumble. However, most of her interpretations of the world had to do with understanding people. One evening she told them that Gar's wide palm foretold that he would make a generous gift of money, an idea that made him roar with laughter and make himself out to be a miser. Astrea's green eyes were because he could see into others' minds, which he found so much the opposite of the truth that he had to clamp his jaws tight to avoid a guffaw of disbelief. The shape of Lindy's ears was a sure indication that she would guide the lives of many children, after which prediction Lindy excused herself to mend brushes and cut stirring sticks for paint, leaving Gar and the widow Amy to swap exaggerations. 
Estrella followed her out onto the doorstep, where they sat in the fading glow of a rose-colored summer sunset. Lindy took a knife from her pocket and began to trim a paintbrush. Estrella found himself completely absorbed by the way that the last light caught her hair, putting a soft halo around her face. He felt that the most important thing in the world was to remember what he saw so that he could paint it at a later date, even though he knew as he looked that he would only be able to capture a weak echo of the moment. When she eventually looked up, he looked away, and launched into speech to cover his embarrassment. Some of Amy's sayings sound reasonable, but I can't tell for sure which of them are right and which are foolish, said Estrella. She's a little bit like my great-aunt, said Lindy, before she went completely silly, that is. Estrella waited silently, hoping Lindy would tell him about her childhood. Meanwhile, he watched the sunset deepen the honey shades of her hair. "'Tell me about her,' he said eventually. After another long pause, Estrella tried another tack. "'Why don't you paint as well?' Lindy carefully put down the brush she was fixing. "'I can see what's right after you and Gar have done it, and sometimes I can tell what's wrong, too, but I can't make it happen myself.' "'You mix paints and get shades that I have difficulty even seeing,' said Estrella. "'And you see shapes I only notice after you've put them down in lines,' she counted. "'I have so much to learn,' said Estrella. "'Gar—' "'Gar watches what you do and shakes his head,' said Lindy. "'Then how can I fix it?' said Estrella. "'No, no, no, Estrella. "'It's because he can't believe how good you are. "'The two of you are up there on the scaffold, painting your heart's eye. "'swinging around as if you were birds in a tree "'and could float down to earth on wings if you ever slipped. "'Neither of you believes that what you're doing is any good, "'and yet each of you admires what the other does. "'You don't realize how alike you are.' "'We argue a lot. "'True, but both of you would die "'rather than tell the other what you're really thinking.' "'I don't know if what I'm thinking would interest Gar,' said Estrella. "'I wish I knew more about him.' "'If I were talking to Gar, he'd probably say the same thing about you,' said Lindy. Even though he had come to respect Lindy's opinions, Estrella found this difficult to believe. "'Why did you leave your home, Lindy? And how did you come to be travelling with Gar?' "'It was best for my family and community,' she said. Estrella saw her lips tighten, closing off the fleeting hints of unsaid words. He wanted to exchange memories about their respective childhoods and upbringing. For the first time in his life, he felt he could drop the guard that time and habit had built up around his childhood experiences of both joy and pain, culminating in how he felt about being left for dead in a strange land. He knew that she had heard the facts. It was the reasons and emotions that he wanted to share. He was so caught up in this complicated longing that he was unaware of her eager look as they sat together gazing at the glow left by the setting sun. "'Come away into the house,' called the widow Amy, pulling them from their reverie. "'Into bed, both of you, while there's still light.' When they went inside, she stood, hands on ample hips, watching them go to their separate rooms. Then, when their virtue had been ensured, she went looking for Gar. The leaves darkened into the shades of late summer, the meadows browned in the heat of the sun, and even some of the learneds occasionally carried their gowns over one arm. 
Inside the hall, Astraea barely noticed the passage of time. Each day brought new insights about seeing, watching, and painting what he saw. From Gar, he discovered touches and tricks. From Lindy, he learned about colors and how to make them from a variety of unlikely ingredients. The three of them shared a focus on completing a task none of them could have done alone. Their universe held its breath while they painted their version of it on the walls and ceiling of the learned's hall. From time to time Damon, Sandy, and Nock visited them, looked about, and then left, when they were unable to enter the charmed circle that held Astraea, Lindy, and Gara together. After her evening in the tavern, Eva did not reappear, nor did anyone mention her. Then, as the scent of late summer haying drifted from nearby farms across the castle grounds, Damon and his friends showed up and made their presence more insistent than it had been on previous occasions. As usual, it was Damon who talked most. Astraea noticed that his moustache had begun to curl up at the ends, giving him a devil-may-care look that suited his quick smiles and sudden movements. He was no less irreverent than at their first meeting, bluntly asking Gar to talk about the overall plan, the meaning of which was still unclear. "'What's it all about, Gar?' Gar wiped his hands on a rag and sniffed. "'Above your head is a painting that will live for ages in the minds of learneds and scholars alike,' he began in the voice he used for telling stories and making exaggerated claims. Then, as he continued, he shifted to the softer tones that he used to teach Astraea. "'Think of it as a single picture made of many images.' All around are trees, plants, and flowers. Within, animals and birds. So far, that's what you see. They're done. All around are students, learneds, and ordinary folk. They're all sketched in, and most of them are nearly finished. What's going in the middle? Astraea felt a stab of jealousy that he had not been told, and that Damon, an outsider to the three of them, should be first to hear Gar's plans. However, Gar's tone shifted back to the one he used with the learneds. "'That you will have to wait and see.' "'But what does it all mean?' Damon asked. Gar ran his fingers through his hair, inadvertently daubing green paint on the bare top of his head. "'The painting is about the idea I was asked to paint, the life of a learned. The reverend sirs instructed me to paint about the urgent pursuit of understanding, the unremitting search for knowledge, and the unswerving desire for truth. He paused, sniffed, and frowned. So that must be what it's all about. Astraea looked at Lindy, who raised one eyebrow. Her lips seemed to say, I'm not so sure. Gar's expression was entirely serious but there was a note in his voice like the one he used when talking to the widow Amy. Estrella's jealousy faded. Damon stared at Gar. "'Do you mean it?' he asked. Gar nodded curtly, his eyebrows raised, as if offended. Damon took a breath to tease Gar with questions about what all the birds, beasts, and people had to do with the cloistered, self-absorbed, and argumentative learneds, changed his mind, and took Estrella by the arm. Your lessons start today in the manly art of staying alive in the face of cold steel, he said. We have to prepare you before Carl comes to call. I have no further quarrel with Carl, said Estrella. No further quarrel, echoed Damon incredulously. 
He took you by surprise from behind, he offered to cut you up, he got you hauled in front of the mare, and you say you have no quarrel? Estrella, if you hadn't been so quick and cool when the knives were out, I'd think you were one of those pen-wielders who think fingers are for turning pages and scribbling down their own musty thoughts. It's all over as far as I'm concerned, said Estrella firmly, hoping Damon had not heard about how Gar and Lindy had ejected Carl from the hall. "'Well, it ain't over for Carl,' said Nock, slowly but emphatically. "'He's looking for another go at you.' "'For Carl, you're the one that got away,' said Sandy. "'He wants to take another crack.' Gar cleaned his nails with his palette-knife. "'Listen to them,' he said to his finger-ends. "'When that knife-happy bully comes back, he'll know you're slippery, "'and you won't be able to deal with him the same as you did before.' Estrella looked at Gar, grateful that he had not mentioned Carl's last visit, but the painter's attention was focused on getting a crust of paint from under his left thumbnail. Lindy's voice made them all turn. "'I know one important thing about knife-fighting,' she said. "'The difference between the winners and the losers is that the winners lose less blood than the losers. Not none, just less. The only sensible approach to knife-fighting is to be a good runner.' Or to be quick with a stick. "'There hasn't been anyone killed in years around here,' said Nock, as if he regretted it. "'Of course, there's people who've been cut up a bit,' said Sandy cheerfully. "'Losers,' said Damon. "'Why do it?' demanded Lindy. "'If you have to paw the ground and snort like randy bulls, why don't you go about it the way they do, without weapons?' "'It's not the way,' said Sandy. "'Then the way's ridiculous. "'Better stay out of it, Estrella,' said Lindy, returning to her paint. "'Not possible,' said Damon. "'Not how it's done. "'Only a fool meets a knife with bare hands. "'And anyway, Carl will choose a place where running's out of the question.' "'We never run,' declared Nock with finality. "'Go with them, Estrella. "'Leave now,' Gar ordered harshly. "'Lindy and I'll finish up. Just look after your hands and eyes.' Estrella stared, silenced by something in Gar's voice he had never heard before, a tone of command that could not be ignored or denied. He wanted to wait, ask questions, talk over the options that might be considered, but found himself obeying automatically. Lindy looked up at him, the word ghosts on her lips so quick that Estrella could not even guess at her thoughts. When he tried to meet her eyes— she looked down, her blonde hair falling like a curtain around her face. Gar's hand touched her shoulder, but she did not move. Damon plucked at his arm again. Estrella picked up his tunic and went with the three green-cloaked scholars. They left the hall, crossed the tree-dotted castle grounds, and went out the gate in the wall, Estrella's thoughts balancing between curiosity about what he might learn and concern about what both Lindy and Gar had left unsaid. For the first time, he was sure he had seen Lindy disagree with Gar's assessment of a situation, and though for the present he was prepared to follow Gar's advice, he was uneasy. Damon led the way. They left the town, crossed fallow fields, and pushed through patches of scrubby alder that were reclaiming what some farmer had cleared many years before. Damon chose a spot where the grass had been cropped short by wandering cattle, 
shrugged off his cloak and wound it around his left arm. Sandy produced two wicked-looking knives, each considerably longer than a handspan. "'Some people start off with a wooden practice knife,' said Damon. "'But you need to learn a lot in a short time. Besides, wooden blades build false confidence. Never forget for an instant that these things cut.' He took a knife from Sandy and tossed it into the air. Steel glittered in the afternoon sun. Damon caught the knife by the handle, sighted along the blade, and lobbed it to closely miss Estrella. Time slowed. Estrella sidestepped, reached into the whirling arc of metal as it passed him, and took the knife by the handle. Nock crowed with glee, and Sandy whistled. A natural, Damon! Estrella looked at the weapon he had caught. It was two handspans from pommel to tip, had a short curved guard at the beginning of the blade, and a reverse curve towards the end where it was sharpened on both edges. It balanced in his hand, and when he waved it back and forth, he automatically turned his wrist so that the cutting edge was leading. This was a weapon and nothing else. He could not even imagine using it for cooking, splitting fish, or splicing rope. "'He's got some learning to do,' said Damon grimly, covering his surprise. For the rest of the afternoon Damon led a series of repetitive drills. Each began differently, some low and thrusting, some high and slashing, some weaving from side to side. The drills were formalized. To each attack there was a reply of knife, arm, and body that, if successful, left the attacker foiled, and perhaps at a disadvantage. Each drill ended with the finishing blow, feigned but undelivered. At first Damon moved slowly. Then, when Astrea finished ahead of him, he quickened the pace. As drill followed drill, the knife became an extension of Astrea's hand, and a subtle change came over the way he moved. Damon's face reddened with exertion as he strove to maintain his advantage, but Astrea's blade began to anticipate his, forcing him to drop back. After several such sequences, Damon fell back a pace to take a fresh guard and pretended to stumble. Estrella paused to let Damon regain his balance, and in that moment Damon threw his knife. Estrella swung to one side, hearing the knife swish through the air past his ear. "'You could have had me if you'd followed through,' said Damon through clenched teeth. "'But if I'd thrown faster, you'd be wearing my blade in your eye. This isn't a game, Estrella. Try it once more.' Again they squared off, and again Damon was late at the end of a series of feints and parries. Astrea saw his advantage grow, but did not press home an attack. As he relaxed his attention, Damon's attack took him by surprise. His foot hit the back of Astrea's knee. When he staggered, Damon's left hand caught clothes and yanked. Astrea saw a restless opening, another and another, but the knife in his hand was in the way of the holds he would have made, and as he hesitated, Damon was behind him. Estrella felt steel against his throat. "'Remember,' panted Damon in his ear, "'in knife-fighting there are no rules.' Estrella's eyes widened. He nodded, but his thoughts were confused. He realized that it was foolish to look for wrestling holds in a knife-fight, but he was unwilling to accept that there were no rules. "'Again tomorrow,' said Damon. "'Now, give me a coin.' Estrella pulled a silver penny from his pocket. 
Damon took it from him, spun it in the air, and caught it. "'The knife is now yours.' "'I already have one. My father's—' "'Good for cutting rope. Not a real weapon. Besides, you just bought a new one.' "'It must be worth more than a penny,' began Estrella. "'It's worth the first coin out of your pocket. You bought it, so it can't cut our friendship. Here's its sheath. Wear your knife— but don't show it unless you mean to use it. Now, let's find ale. They walked back to the jug and bottle, three of them talking about the finer points of knife-fighting, Estrella walking silently. Without thinking, he had assumed that there must be limits to knife-fighting, as there were to wrestling at the village. He had behaved as if he had been learning a complicated dance, not understanding that the gracefulness and skill hid an ugly reality. The challenge of outmanoeuvring someone was still an attractive test of skill to Estrella, but his village upbringing and his own convictions made him see killing or maiming as insane and abhorrent. Knife-fighting was not like wrestling, in which only pride was lost and won. Nor was it the same as the impersonal challenges set by the sea. Try as he might, Estrella could not find a neutral outcome to knife-fighting, like the one he had discovered in village wrestling. At the village there had always been rules so basic that nobody even gave them words, much less thought of breaking them. There he had been able to elude the shame of being a loser. Now he owned a blade that demanded the final thrust that separates survivors from victims. As he grappled with these thoughts, Estrella remembered Jan's treachery. For the first time he saw how blind he had been to the possibility of attack from outside all rules. Were there then no rules at all? Estrella shook his head as he walked between his new friends. He thought of Carl, and he knew that if it came to a challenge he would have to fight to win. But he still clung to the hope of avoiding what could be a life-or-death situation. Hail, Estrella! "'That's what you need to stiffen you up,' said Sandy. Estrella recognized that his new mentors were thinking that he had been cowed. As his time-sense returned to the everyday, Estrella knew that he held not only the secret of quickness that Damon envied, but also an advantage as keen as the blades he had held. The three scholars did not understand him. Estrella started to smile suddenly knowing that as long as people thought of him as an outsider, he possessed the advantage of the unexpected. He disciplined his lips into stillness, wondering why this had not occurred to him before. He followed quietly, as the three of them entered the tavern in a noisy, jostling group, and took possession of a table. At the other end of the room were the big shadowy circles of barrels, from which the innkeeper and his helpers drew jugs and mugs of ale. Three young women appeared from behind the head-high barrels. Their bodices were loose, their shoulders were bare, and their hair casually unkempt. They teetered as they walked, their hips swivelling, breasts bobbing. How do they do that? Estrella wondered. One of them was the same brown-haired girl who had served them when Gar had been in the big chair now occupied by Damon. Estrella noticed that she was taller than he remembered and he glanced down past her swinging skirt to see that her none-too-clean feet were in sandals that lifted her heels by more than three fingers' width from the floor. She came towards him, stepping short, her wooden heels clacking, 
one foot in front of the other in an almost straight line, a hip dipping one way and a shoulder the other. Noticing Estrella's scrutiny, she adopted a look of disdain. Chin raised, lips slightly parted, she ignored him and headed for Damon. Behind her flounced two more girls of roughly the same age. One of them, a plump, auburn-haired girl, slid unasked onto Nock's knee and took a drink from his ale. Estrella's eyes widened as he looked at the third, a tall, dark-eyed girl whose stomach was bare from her belt to the knot in her blouse that held her breasts in a loose bodice. She bent over Sandy, who slid his hands around her midriff and tried to undo the knot that only just restrained her breasts. The girl's laughing face was masked by Sandy's red hair as he gave her a loud kiss, which was followed by much head-tossing and high-pitched giggling as she alternated between tugging the knot tight and slapping at Sandy's hands. Estrella took a gulp from his tankard to cover his embarrassment and turned towards Damon, only to find himself looking at long, tangled ringlets of hair the colour of old copper, so close that they tickled his nose. Ignoring Estrella, even though she was very conscious of what she was doing, she draped an arm around Damon's shoulders and leaned over him, her hair falling so that it shadowed both his and her own face. Despite the tavern noises, Estrella could hear Damon murmuring something to her. Estrella was embarrassed by the boldness of the girl's behaviour, so unlike that of the village gatherings where only those soon to be married sat together, and then under the eye of the elders. He took another mouthful of beer, thinking that all three girls somehow made him intensely aware of their bodies beneath their clothes in a way that perturbed him. He tried to recapture what Gar called the painter's eye, but the only way he could avoid staring open-mouthed was to look into his beer-mug. Estrella suddenly felt a warm pressure against his thigh. The girl who had leaned on Damon was now sitting beside him, her leg pressing against his. Her fingers tickled along his wrist to the mug he held. Reflexively, Estrella drew back his hand. She sipped his beer and then, as she put the mug down, slid her arm along his. On the other side of the table, Damon launched into a lengthy description of the relative merits of different kinds of knife. Each time Estrella's attention focused on what Damon was saying, he was distracted by slight changes in the pressure of the girl's hip against his side. When he shifted away from her, she slid closer. Then her hand was on his arm, and her breath fanned his cheek. In the same way as he had distanced himself from the knife-fighting to ask himself about his mixed feelings, Estrella found himself examining both the girl and his own reaction to her. It was distracting, but not disagreeable, he decided. He reached for the frame of mind in which he sketched and drew, and deliberately noticed that the girl's fingers ended in close-bitten nails. In the same analytical mood, he examined the gleam of fine downy hair on her forearms in the lamplight. He looked further and scrutinized the way her hair had clumped and tangled around her neck. Then she slid one leg over his thigh, and he felt himself respond to her. In that moment he realized that neither she nor he had yet said a word. When Estrella leaned forward, half to catch what Damon said, half to edge away from the girl, she moved with him. When Estrella glanced at her, her lips parted in a smile that showed slightly uneven teeth. Her brown eyes did not alter their close, appraising stare. 
a similar moment plucked at Estrella's memory, and he recalled the dark-eyed shepherd girl whose fixed stare had disturbed him years before. Then looking was everything and nothing further. Now he saw one of the girl's hands disappear below the table and felt her fingers run up the inside of his leg. Estrella's face reddened, and his eyebrows shot upwards. But when he looked around at the others, Damon's eyes were focused in his ale-mug, and both Sandy and Nock were busy with the other two girls. When Estrella looked at the girl whose hand had so frankly investigated his breeches, her blouse seemed both too large and too small for her. One moment it hung away from her body as she reached across him to commandeer his mug. The next it hugged her chest when she tossed back her head to take a drink. Estrella had never been so conscious or so embarrassed by a woman's breasts. He was grateful when Damon demanded his attention, talking about parries and thrusts, riposts and lunges. The girl swung one shoulder around so that she was almost facing him, and Estrella found himself staring into the valley between her breasts. Blushing uncontrollably, he swallowed, found words, and spoke hesitantly. "'My name is Estrella,' he said awkwardly. "'And that's our Elsie,' said a loud voice behind him. It was the wall-eyed taverner bringing more ale and a fistful of slopping mugs. Estrella stood and reached into the pocket of his breeches for coin to settle his share of the score. The girl slid away and turned to Damon with the flounce of her skirts and a swirl of tangled hair. "'You tell me he's good with a knife,' she began, as she curled an arm around Damon's neck, drawing him towards her as if to tell her secret. "'But he's no swordsman. Have you found yourself a boy now, Damon?' she demanded loudly. "'A tall, thin, black-haired mouse?' Damon dealt her a loud slap on the thigh, pulled her to him, kissed her forcibly on the mouth, and then pushed her away so that she staggered. "'Your memory's slipping, Elsie?' Damon sneered. "'So many faces you've forgotten me? If you asked me nicely, I could have reminded you. But when you let your mouth run ahead of your brains, I can find better things to do.' The girl recovered her balance and shot him an evil look. Tossing her copper-coloured hair back, she turned and walked off, swinging her hips. "'I I think I'll be getting back now,' said Estrella, seizing the opportunity to avoid further embarrassment. Sandy and Nock protested that he had not finished his beer, but Damon slid both his and Estrella's mugs across the table to the two girls beside them. "'Take your time. I'll walk Estrella to his lodgings.' Estrella did not protest even though he wanted to be alone, free of the confusion that the girl had aroused. Her insistent closeness had affected him, his body had reacted, but the more she flaunted herself, the more he had withdrawn, revolted by her brazen attempt to seduce him. Now he only wanted to walk swiftly through the early evening, leaving the experience behind him. When they were still in the shadows of the alley, Damon took his arm, and Estrella tensed against him, breaking his stride and stepping apart. There had been a difference between Damon's gesture and the casual friendliness with which they had all entered the cavern. "'Hey, Estrella!' Damon stopped, and Estrella turned to look at him. Damon raised both shoulders and both hands in an elaborate shrug. Light from an upstairs window fell on his face, making deception impossible. "'Just checking, Estrella.' 
I was wondering if you didn't like those girls, or whether you didn't like girls at all, or preferred boys. Personally, I like girls, high-born, rich, and polished, if the chance ever presents itself, but tavern-dwelling and willing do me just fine. Estrella did not answer. You disapprove of the girls in there, don't you? But you're not the scholar type that beds down with a book and dreams of righteousness, and I can't see you as a snob, so what's your problem? I don't know. I don't know why they were so bold, said Estrella. As they started to walk slowly, side by side, Damon studied his expression. Listen, Estrella, have you never met up with tavern girls before? Estrella shook his head. Then I suppose you really don't know, he said slowly. You haven't done much town living, either, have you? When Estrella said nothing, he continued, Well, to answer your questions, the girls are in it for the fun and the money. Some drinks from anyone with a full purse, a meal and some fun in the back room. But their parents, the elders. Their parents are glad of anything the girls bring home, if they go home. The elders disapprove and look the other way. The soft-headed girls imagine they will find themselves a well-heeled student foolish enough to marry them. Does that happen? I've been here three years and never seen it. Doesn't stop them believing, though. I thought the castle kept women under lock and key. I've seen Eva only once all summer. That's the girls at the castle. The green gowns don't even go into the town taverns, much less control what happens there. Estrella was silent for several strides. "'The girls make love for money, then?' he asked. Damon searched Estrella's face to see if he was being teased, and came to the conclusion that the question had been honestly asked. "'Yes, Estrella,' he said quietly. "'Have you never seen that before?' Estrella shook his head. "'Well, it happens.' And it happens so much, and in so many places, that I can hardly believe that you've never at least heard of it. Are they doing it because they want to? Most of them. Most of the time, I guess. Of course, it's not what you'd call a job with a lot of promise. But what is? Do you approve, Damon? Do I approve? <laughs> Damon made a noise midway between a laugh and a snort. I... Except, I can't change it, and I don't see why I should try. Couldn't they find some work that led to getting husbands and families? If they wanted to. Tell me, did any one of those three look as if she'd rather be baking bread, feeding pigs, caring for a baby? Besides, what's wrong? I couldn't feel that... Estrella paused to find words. I couldn't feel that she was a person... I felt that I was just a curiosity to her, and yet there she was, so close to me. What I'm trying to say, Damon, is that I think a man and a woman should know each other, understand each other, before they do all the girls in your village understand the men they marry. Yes, they share. Not only dances and love-making, their, their lives are intertwined. Damon raised his shoulders as he walked his gown a dark shape billowing behind him. Must be a good place. It is. Everyone understands everyone else. Nobody hurts anyone. No ugly girls get ignored. No stupid boys get left out. 
Astrea took breath to defend the village, then thought of Yan, of Alana's separation from even her own family, of his own loneliness while he was growing up. Several strides later, he still had not replied. I thought so, said Damon smugly. Nowhere's perfect. The important thing is to live in spite of all the imperfections. Enjoy. Know you're alive. Kiss the girl and make the short moments happy. Ignore her bad teeth, and don't think about what she'll look like in a few years. They walked on in silence. Why are you a scholar, Damon? Astrea asked as they neared the outskirts of the town. They all seem to be looking for something. I'm not sure what. But it doesn't seem to have much to do with... With the way I live? Listen, Astrea, I'm a scholar because I was sent here. I didn't have a choice. My father's dead, and my uncle said, A few years at the castle, or no share of your father's land. Somehow, I don't think there'll be any land for me anyway unless I fight him for it. So I'm putting my days at the castle to good use, though not the one he expected. My father is dead, and I didn't have much choice in coming here, said Estrella. They each recognized that the other had memories and thoughts that he did not want questioned, and as a result the silence they shared was companionable as they plodded along the shadowy street towards the town's edge. As they neared the widow Amy's house, Damon stopped. Estrella, I think I—I I think maybe I should be apologizing to you. For what, Damon? Well, I thought you might be upset that I kind of took your girl, Eva. Truth is, she took me. I've been seeing her almost every day. I mean, you didn't seem to be interested in anything but painting, and— Eva isn't my girl, Damon. We had, um— a moment. But really, she's in love with being a healer, not with me. Hmm, maybe she is. I hadn't thought of that. But I have to tell you that she's the first girl that's kept me interested for longer than it takes until the next one wanders past. You saw how I dumped Elsie back there at the tavern. Do you love Eva, Damon? I'm, I'm, I'm tied up to her. She's got me in a spell or something. You sound like the widow Amy. How do you mean? Well, she's quite the best lover I am. Lover? The word popped out of Astrea's astonished mouth. Do I hear just a little bit of jealousy there, Astrea? No, said Astrea slowly. It's just that she said she wasn't experienced when we, when we kissed. You kissed her then? Yes, back at Teenmouth. Just kissed. Yes. We agreed that there was too much chance of her having a baby if we... And she's... She's like the girls back in my village. She doesn't... Well, Astrea, she sure does now. And she's not likely to have a baby either. How can you be sure? She's young and healthy and... Astrea, the first thing apprentice women healers learn is where they're supposed to sleep. The second is how to get to the dining hall. The third is how not to have babies, and the fourth is not to talk about it. Oh, Estrella felt that he had heard too much. He started down the darkened road again, but Damon's voice stopped him at his second stride. And there's another thing, Estrella. Our meeting in the marketplace wasn't exactly an accident.
Before I met you, a fellow found me at the castle and told me you were coming. He promised me a bunch of money if I relieved you of your purse and parchment and gave them to him. He even told me how much money was in the bag so I couldn't cheat. So that's why I was there with Nock and Sandy to meet a black-haired boy and a pretty girl from Teenmouth. Gar and Lindy were a complete surprise. Estrella shook his head. I thought we were friends, he began slowly. Well, Estrella, we are. I am. Or I got that way. And if it makes you any happier, I'm really, really sorry I was planning to steal from you. I'm ashamed of myself. And if you can't forgive me, that's fine, because if I were in your shoes, I'd not find it easy. Damon spoke in bursts of words, quite unlike his usual confident speech. Estrella took a long, deep breath. He was whipsawed back and forth between belief and doubt, trust and deception. Leaving Damon's words hanging, he asked a question. He knew how much was in the bag? I didn't know that. I never counted it. He knew, said Damon. He wasn't leading me on. Who was he, for goodness sake? Damon's voice returned to his usual tone. "'Well, it wasn't the kind of meeting where people use their real names. "'Then what did he look like? "'He was well-built, you know, farmer-strong. "'I remember he had strange eyes. "'Never saw anything like them before. "'They weren't just brown. "'They were really dark brown all over, like a dog's. "'Almost no whites.' "'Astrea stood silent, remembering the young man "'who had wished him an ironic farewell.' His name was Seth, Estrella muttered. Then one idea led to another. He organized the ambush. He only pretended to attack Eva. He wasn't covering up a blow. He was hiding his face because he knew I would recognize him. She knew all along. They must have worked it out together. She only pretended she was through with Seth to confuse me. What she wanted was the money to come here to the castle. I bet her mother knew, and helped her. Judith said there were people who thought I shouldn't be the Teenmouth Scholar. Of course. One in particular, Eva, who wanted it more than, more than, well, enough to play me for a fool. Estrella, you have to believe me. I thought the fellow, Seth, would turn up and ask me for the money, but he never did. She must have known said Estrella unhappily. Everyone betrays me. Yan, Jack, Scarm, Judith, Eva, now you. Estrella turned from Damon and walked down the darkened road towards the widow Amy's house. Hey, Estrella, not me. I told you what happened. I didn't betray you. Oh, all right, I thought about taking advantage of you, but that was before I knew you. "'You can't blame me for what didn't happen.' Estrella kept walking. Damon's voice came after him in sudden anger. "'And thanks so very much for telling me my girl's a conniving little bitch, you self-righteous prig!' Estrella increased speed, pounding his heels furiously into the road. After a few strides he caught his toe in a rut and fell face down. He lay where he had fallen, breathing in the dust, trying to deal with what he had heard. The facts were plain. The feelings were overwhelming. He got to his feet and walked slowly to the widow Amy's house, pushed open the back door, and blinked at the single candle guttering on the kitchen table 
in front of where he usually sat. He had missed the evening meal, but Amy had left a cold supper for him. He picked up the cloth that covered a plate of bread, cheese, ham, and greens, and dropped it back when his stomach knotted against even the sight of food. He had survived Jan's treachery, Carl's attack, the injustice of being accused of fighting, and he had learned to think of them as adventures along a road to something important. Until now his way had been confusing, but it had seemed to him something that was his and his alone. Now he knew that others had actually shaped his choices for him, and he felt that he had been played for a fool. From the front room came the sound of Gar and the widow Amy talking. His own name, mispronounced as usual, aroused him to concentrate on what they were saying. "'Strayer must be in love,' said the widow Amy. Whatever Gar said in return made the widow laugh immoderately. Estrella flushed as he had when the tavern girl had touched him, and a confusion of emotions made him want to shout and strike something or someone. One hand on his new knife, he turned and walked swiftly out of the kitchen into the night, taking the road towards the town. In a few moments he slowed, the aftertaste of too much beer in his throat. Two houses crouched in the darkness, each with one window faintly lit. They were the cottages belonging to some of the town's poorest people, and they were even smaller than the widow Amy's. From one of them came the cry of a child, followed by a ringing slap, then whimpering before silence. Confused shouting in the distance disturbed the night as a tavern on the edge of town disgorged drunken revellers. Estrella looked up at the sky, seeing the familiar shapes of constellations he had learned from Skarm, finding some of them half lost in the northern sky, while to the south were stars he could not name. When he looked down again, his eyes had adjusted to the pale starlight, and he could dimly see the road at his feet, leading towards the yellow lights of town. He hesitated, unsure whether to go forward or back, and in that confused moment stumbled on a lump of horse manure that in daytime he would have seen and avoided. He was wiping his boot against a tuft of grass at the edge of the road when he heard a soft footfall. Before he knew it, the knife Damon had given him was back in his hand, held low. A pale figure shimmered in the starlight. You learn knife-fighting quickly? Lindy's calm voice froze Estrella's churning emotions and his mind cleared. "'I hope not,' said Estrella fervently, aghast that he had drawn on her without a flicker of preliminary thought. "'Defence is necessary, Estrella,' began Lindy as she stepped closer. "'It wasn't defence that I learned,' said Estrella. He suddenly asked himself whether he could maintain control when his emotions flared, as they had when Gar and Lindy had saved him from Carl. And yet, as he stood in front of Lindy, a part of him was proud of his deadly talent, even eager to take revenge on those who had lied to him, and to make up for the fact that other people had been doing his fighting for him. The trouble is, he said slowly, I enjoyed it. That's not all that's on your mind, said Lindy. No, agreed Estrella, but could not go on. His village training was that men did not talk of their inner troubles. He surmised this was true of his father, who had kept so much of his previous life from Alana that she could not even explain the notebooks he had left behind. Probably his inability to share was inherited. 
Walk with me, said Lindy. They turned and paced the darkened road in silence, steadily moving away from the town, past the widow Amy's house, and on to where fields spread out on both sides, shadowy trees in the distance. Soon they were clear of the last smells from the crowded houses, and they breathed the cleaner air of the countryside. The sounds around them no longer were from people finding their way into and out of sleep, but came instead from the hedgerows where small creatures were going about their nightly adventures. The starlight, which had been so thin as to be barely noticeable, now drew his eyes upwards. He took his direction from above, as he might have steered a ship, with the road ahead visible only at the edge of seeing. Step by step, Estrella silenced his troubled inner voices, leaving them trodden into the road. Eventually, after Estrella had been striding faster and faster for some time, Lindy stopped and leaned on her staff. Estrella missed her presence beside him, stopped, and turned to look at her where she stood almost invisible in the starlight. "'We could go on,' she said, "'but we lack a destination.' Unexpectedly, Estrella laughed. "'Lindy, you are so practical,' he said. "'Where did you learn to take life so, so—' "'Reasonably?' she asked. "'I learned that fear comes from not understanding, "'and that there really is nothing that can't be understood "'if you take the trouble to think about it. "'It sounds as if you didn't have much laughter around you "'when you were growing up. "'You're wrong. "'It was after I left that I seemed to lose the knack of laughing.' "'There's a lot in the world that isn't funny at all,' said Estrella, her hair streaked with starlight as she nodded. "'Why did you leave your home?' he asked. "'It's necessary. There aren't enough men in Mattress. If a woman wants a husband, or, or at least a baby, she has to go looking.' "'What do you mean?' "'Mattress is small. I couldn't marry anyone there, because I'm related to the few of them that are even roughly the right age.' The elders agreed that I should leave. "'That's awful,' said Estrella, a wave of dark incomprehension again sweeping over him. "'No, it's reasonable. Besides, I've been lucky. I found Gar, and learned a lot more than if I'd just found the first man who looked healthy and made a baby. Fortunately, I had more sense than that.' She paused and pointed towards a fallen tree near the road. Let's sit for a moment. Tell me about your village, Estrella. They left the road and sat side by side on the tree trunk, looking up at stars that dimly lit their faces. Damon's ironic probing of the claim that the village was a uniformly happy place stuck like a burr in Estrella's mind. And he talked about the hardships of village life, of the men who did not come back from the fishing grounds. Hesitantly at first, and then increasingly easily, he talked about his own loneliness and the father he had never known. He tried to explain how he and Alanna had become increasingly remote. Before he knew it, Estrella was speaking about how he felt about Jan's treachery, Eva's father's trickery, the girls in the tavern, Damon's revelation, and Eva's duplicity. Because he talked about feelings rather than facts, what he said was often disjointed and confused. But through it all, Lindy did not interrupt, as he wrestled with contradictions that made him feel both lucky and unlucky, doomed 
and yet somehow chosen for he did not know what. They sat side by side, the road a dark ribbon running away from them in the starlight. Then Lindy turned and put her arms around Estrella. One hand tilted his head down the slight amount needed, and she kissed him, her lips warm and soft. Sudden delight caught Estrella unaware, and he made a small sound of surprise. Do you think me bold? Lindy asked, her arms still around him. It was the same word Estrella had used to describe the tavern girl, and unwanted memories flowed back. Girls in your village don't kiss boys, do they? They wait until they're kissed. Well, I'm not like that. Does it bother you? Estrella's arms slid around Lindy, drawing her closer. Her hair smelled of the fields through which they had been walking, and her breath was warm on his cheek. No, he answered, and they both moved still closer. I like it. Oh, good, said Lindy, because I'll never learn to simper and pretend. She kissed him again. This time Estrella responded, and for both of them there was nothing but their kiss. He felt Lindy's breasts pressing against him, her hand in his hair, her lips moving against his. Eventually she sighed, drew back, and picked up her staff. "'We're going back now,' she said. "'Logs aren't comfortable and the ground's wet.' Estrella stood up, drew her to him, and they kissed for a time that neither of them cared to count. "'Practical,' he chuckled. He looked down into her face and saw a tranquil smile that he had never seen before. "'I would like to draw you as you are now,' he said, tracing his finger across her face and into her hair. "'You can't see me, that's why. I see you perfectly. Nobody would recognize me. I would.' They walked back to the widow Amy's house hand in hand, stopping occasionally to kiss again. Neither of them noticed that their return took much longer than their outward journey. When they reached the house they paused on the doorstep to kiss once more. "'This isn't how it ends,' Lindy whispered. "'Be very quiet on the way in,' and they were suddenly nearly pitched to the ground as the door was jerked open and the end of a broomstick thrust out. "'All right, you lovers,' snarled Gar's voice. "'There are six more of us inside.' Estrella's hand found his knife at the same moment that Lindy's staff struck the broomstick, knocking it to the ground. "'No, there aren't, Gar,' said Lindy. The door swung open. "'Well, I'll be pounded flat,' he said, his voice softening. "'If it isn't the returning innocence. Get in here, quickly. We have planning to do. Eva just woke us out of our well-earned rest with uncomfortable news.' Carl has decided to pay you a visit tomorrow, Estrella, and we have to work out a way of keeping you alive. You have been listening to the Estrella Trilogy, Book One, The Voyage South, written and read by Seymour Hamilton. All three books are available in electronic and paper formats from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Chapters. Visit estreatrilogy.com for more about Estrella's world. This audio version is licensed under the United States Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0.